as I slip on this before it's all said and done, you can start doing uh, bets how long into the sermon it takes for me to trip on something. It's like, you know, those football pulls where, you, you know, the score is going to be 21 to 7 for 50 bucks. At what point, look at the clock, it's 11.37, how many minutes till I fall? Uh, fair warning, actually I'm going to skip um, a couple of these things. I wanted to, actually it's not up there, okay. Oh, look at the little arrow. Frank was caught, he was taking bets. He was already, he's like 10 minutes, Isaac's going to fall. He saw where it happened in the first service. Charlene, you replaced Frank? Did he fall? Is he okay? Okay, so uh, the same warning today as the warning is last week, if you were here. Today's content of the message is adult in nature. So um, it's explicit, it's, it's deep, it's dark. Uh, so if you have young kids in the room, parents, you could decide what you think is appropriate. Um, there is nothing in the message in and of itself that's adult in nature. It's purely driven from what's actually in the story. The story is dark and adult in content. So if you've trusted your kid with like the whole Bible and you've told them to read it, and they did, they would have read all this stuff. It's, uh, I say that though, a lot of times, you know, I don't feel bad about this. I know Christians, they start off reading like, um, you know, some of those books that start off with the genealogy. You get about two chapters in and then you skip over to like, let's read the book of John. Well, those ones with the genealogies that you usually skip over are the ones with the most brutal stuff. Uh, and today is brutal. It's adult, so parents, you can decide. I would certainly feel comfortable with junior hires and, uh, of course, high schoolers because we want them reading the Bible and all this stuff's in the Bible. But for children, parents, your call. We have wonderful children programming. Don't feel bad if you need to walk out now. Okay, so where are we at in this big, giant series going through the life of David? Oh, I got to see you guys in the corner there, Steve Parker. You're blocked off by the giant pirate ship. And when I, who else? Oh yeah, okay, I see some more. Steve's got a good encouraging face, so sometimes when, you know, people are getting the the evil eye at the pastor, I just go, Steve Parker, smile at me and encourage me. (laughs) He's got a good, he's a good encourager. Okay, so uh, we were in what we call the wonder years of David's life, where it's all good. These are the stories you know. David's a man after God's own heart. David slays Goliath. David is crowned as king. Those are the wonder years. Now we're entering into the dark years. And the dark years started a couple weeks ago with the story of David and Bathsheba. And in that story, David is in his palace at a time when all the other kings are going off to the war. He's stayed back and he sees Bathsheba naked on the roof bathing and he takes her. Now he takes her into his growing harem. In other words, David has become a full-blown polygamist. He has multiple wives, multiple relationships. And this begins a downward spiral. After David takes Bathsheba, he has her husband, Uriah, murdered. His children grow up in this polygamous, dysfunctional way. David is depicted as an absentee father. He can't manage his household. He doesn't discipline his kids. And his sins continue the same sin cycles that dad did. Last week was the brutal, horrific story where the first in line to be king after David, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Because of that, the next, next in line to be king after Amnon, a guy named Absalom, avenges his sister Tamar's death and kills Amnon. Absalom is then forced to go into exile because dad, David, is extremely mad that Absalom killed his son, Amnon. It's depressing. It's dark. But the good news, you know, some of you guys got some pretty whacked families, but you ain't that bad. You ain't that bad. You ain't that bad until you see David's life, man. So Absalom is now the next in line to be king, and he is in exile because he's killed Amnon, the original first in line to be king, and David has kind of said, I don't want anything to do with you, Absalom. This is where our story picks up. Absalom sends a messenger to David saying, I want to come back to Jerusalem. I want to come home. I don't like this distance. 
And the king says to the messenger with Absalom's message, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So basically dad says, yeah, you could come back, you could in the exile, but I don't want to see you. Like as a parent, this kind of like bothers you, rubs you the wrong way, right? Like yes, Absalom killed Amnon, but Amnon raped your daughter and you did nothing about it, dad. I took it into my own hands. I did what you should have done. And in addition, all this mess is a direct kind of outflow of David's sin. He's the one who's starting all this, the, 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 the whack dysfunction and problems. And so you get this idea, it's like, man, why, why does David just cut off Absalom? It goes on, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was very heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair on his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Now, a couple observations directly from the text. First, when the Bible depicts men with long hair, it depicts them as men to be honored and valued and respected. They are warriors. They are mighty. They come from a different cloth. They're royalty. The hair symbolically resents that, represents that. Second, some, some funny? Second, you kind of get, you get a heart for Absalom. He names his daughter Tamar after his sister, who, by the way, is living a lonely, desolate life in his household, if you were here last week. Now, in seriousness, this idea about the hair and the handsome stuff, it's, it's critical here. When we started this series, we talked about how the Bible rarely physically gives physical descriptions of someone. So when the Bible gives a physical description of someone, it's very important. Now, if you've been reading First and Second Samuel, when someone is described as handsome, is it a good sign or a bad sign? It's a bad sign. Because all you beautiful people look better than all us normal folk. Your day will come. Your day will come. No, no. The Bible doesn't hate handsome men. What it does, though, is when it describes handsome men, it's a way to signal to the reader people are judging this person by their physical or external appearance, but God knows the heart. And just because they look good on the outside, watch out. Who at the beginning of our story was described as beautiful and handsome and tall? Saul. And there was a downward trajectory with that. So Absalom is depicted as this, this handsome person. And that should be like a way for you to see that something's bad, something bad is going to occur. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Again, you kind of just like, this is messed up. Absalom was gone for roughly three years in exile, and now he's at least back in Jerusalem, but dad hasn't seen him for two years. And so Absalom consults another messenger and says, go to my father, tell him I, I, I want to see him. I want to reconcile. Then Joab, the messenger, went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. It's great. This looks like here is reconciliation. Maybe dad and son could put the differences aside. Absalom's next in line to be king. David could mentor Absalom. They could kind of right the wrongs, become a healthy family, bring stability to the nation, and get on the right track with the Lord. And it appears like that is going to be the case because David humbly, like, like apologetically bows and kisses my son Absalom's back. That's not what actually is occurring. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? 
And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. All right, first off, there's another uh, clue, another foreshadow, another wink by the narrator of our story. As soon as Absalom is restored to David, what does he do? He gets a chariot. And if you're familiar with the biblical literature, chariots are symbolic in nature. Chariots mean kings are beginning to trust in their own power, in their own might. They are beginning to rely on raw militaristic power rather than trusting in the Lord. There's a famous Bible verse. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord. So it's this clue. It's like this wink. This Absalom guy, it looks like it's all good. Don't trust it. Now, what's the setting? What's going on? Absalom is at the gate, and this, is, this, this isn't any normal gate. What happens at this time is, like, the highest court, the Supreme Court, is basically the king. And so the king was to sit at a certain place and judge the difficult situations of the people. If it wasn't the king, he would at least have a judge appointed. There would be a direct appointee from the king. So you go to the gate, the gate, because you and your neighbor have a dispute and you can't solve it. And so you go to the king or his appointed judge to have it resolved. David's not there. And so Absalom is meeting these people. And this is very familiar with another incident. Remember David, Bathsheba? It says, when all the kings were off to war, David was at home. When there should be somebody judging with righteousness and justice at the gate of Jerusalem, rendering right and wrong for their people. There's no one there, neither the king nor an appointed judge. We don't know why. We don't know the situation, but Absalom is there. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Then thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You see the spirit of Absalom. Oh, that I were judge in the land. I could do it better. I could be the better king. I could be the better judge. And if you don't watch out, this same spirit gets a hold of you, right? Like you have a boss, a director, a manager, someone in charge of you, and like, they're incompetent, they're lazy, they don't know what they're doing. Oh, if I were in charge. Oh, if, if I could be in that position. Now, to be fair, sometimes it's, it's true. Sometimes you do have a bad boss, bad manager, and you would do a better job. But the posture of a Christian is the posture of humility, not, oh, how awesome of a job I could do. So have you ever done that? You know what I'm talking about? And you just look at someone who's appointed above you, just like, gossip about them, slander them, and you, you just tell yourself, you're so wise in your eyes, you could do it better. I've done this a lot in my life. Um, this happens in the church world with pastors, so uh, when I was a youth pastor here, you can always look at, like, the adult pastors, the senior pastor, Eric, especially I did with this, mostly Greg, for the most part, um, and he'd be like, you know, if I was in charge, I could do it better. You know, I could be better. You always think whoever's above you, you could do it better. And it's really easy when you're like, like down here because you can point out everything that's wrong and, and, and not have to solve any of it. And then you get put in that position and you realize, man, there's a weight up here that, that I didn't want. And when, it's, when you're like number two, number three, or four, you can point the problem and you don't have to fix it. You don't have to deal with the fallout of having to fix something. When you're in charge, the buck stops with you. Everything's your fault, even when it's not. When you're number two, you could say, you know, hey man, I, I, I talked to the main guy. I, I, I'm with you, I'm with you. You know, it's like the car salesman thing. Hey, I went and talked to my manager. I tried to get you the cheat. He says they're not gonna budge, man. I went and talked to the manager. The second you have all the weight, there's no one else you can say, oh, I went and talked. No, it's like, no, that's my decision, I'm sorry. And there's a weight to that. There's a burden to that. And Absalom's spirit is not of one of humility, nor was mine. And even in small things, we could do this. It doesn't have to be like a boss or a manager. Just that negative spirit where we think we could do it better. 
So this isn't to make anybody feel bad, and you're probably going to laugh if you're guilty of this. I got my eyes out. Uh, Like, there's some of you who, and I know this, again, don't feel bad. It's not between me and you, it's before you and God. Like, as soon as church service is over, you get in the car, and rather being thankful that, like, you got to worship God in, in a, like, you're free without persecution, you have nice, comfortable chairs, like, most of the world doesn't have, it's like, the first thing you do is start complaining about the church service, it's like, oh, man, I hate that song, we play that song too much, play that song too much, Jude Dollar, why you always play that same song, no one likes it. No one likes it. That's what I do to Drew after service. I'm guilty. I go, Drew, I hate that song. Don't ever play that song again, man. It's horrible. <laughs> and then Drew, you know, will say, hey, I'm tired of hearing that same illustration for the fifth time in the same. You got any new material? <laughs> hey, Rhonda's clapping, man. That's, that was a little hurtful right there, Rhonda. Yeah. Ew, clapping, man. It's like get an amen out of the grace of God and don't use that illustration again, man. It's messed up. But you know what I mean, right? It's like you're easy to judge what's right and what's wrong. It's like, you don't know. Like, it's, it's so funny in the church world too. Like, majority of church folk are awesome and, and, and loving, and that's, that's true of this church. But in any church, I'm not gonna, you know, you don't know who you are anyway. Um, in every church, there's people, it's like, it's like, you can play five hymns on a Sunday, and they'll say, not enough hymns. Or you'll get like a, a connect card that'll be like, not enough hymns today, and someone else will say, too many hymns. Or you'll get a card, too loud today, not loud enough. What are our speakers doing? It's crazy. It's crazy. But again, whatever, whatever your career, whatever you're at in life, there's a, a tendency, a spirit to be critical. I'm guilty of it. You're probably guilty. We're all probably guilty of it. It's easy to be critical. And Absalom has had this spirit in him, but to like exponential strength. Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Oh, that I would be king. And the sinister thing of it is he's out there and he's listening to all the people. In the king's absence, Absalom is listening. And he's, there's flattery. He's like kissing their hands, listening. Justice is being administered. And the end goal is the last line. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Important detail. If you are a follower of the Lord at this point in history, what part of the Bible do you have? This is a thousand years before Jesus. You don't have the New Testament. You don't have the majority of the Old Testament. You probably have what we call the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Maybe you got a rough draft of Ruth, a rough draft of Judges. You may have the completed, whatever. You have very little of what we know as the Bible today. Your focus is on the first five books. Now, does the first five books, the Torah, have anything to say about vows? The answer is, yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 23. It says, if you take a vow... Try and fulfill it as soon as you can. So if you're going to make a vow, it's ASAP, complete what you promised. Absalom is saying he made a vow to go make sacrifices to the Lord in Hebron. How long has he been here now? Four years. Minimum, four years. So it's the author's way again of saying something's not right. If Absalom was truly honoring the Lord in his life, he's not waiting four years to go fulfill the vow. Second, the location. Hebron or Hebron. What's significant about this place? If, if you pay a close, close attention to all the details in our story, this is the place David is crowned king after Saul's fall. This is the place his father is crowned king. So Absalom magically has a conviction after four years he wants to go back to the place where his father was crowned to fulfill a vow to the Lord. You should be suspicious. But David, he doesn't, he doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. Remember Amnon came to David last week and asked for a favor and David was clueless about his real intentions? We see the same thing. David is clueless to the intentions of Absalom. 
But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went, into, they went in innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Absalom goes to this location. He takes 200 people who don't know what's going on with him. These 200 people are from Jerusalem. These are probably administrators or royal advisors or government people. They don't know, but they go. Why? Because when crisis is going to hit the capital and the conspiracy breaks loose, all of a sudden David's administrators, his, his kind of royal advisors, all the people who are there to handle crisis situations are taken out. And the sinister thing about this is that multiple people are betraying the king. In fact, it's not just being depicted as like a few people join Absalom. The, the kind of rhetoric in the passage is that all of Israel is joining Absalom. Now, it's not all of Israel because David has faithful people beside him, but the point is that the vast majority of Israel, David's friends, David's counselors, many of David's family members, this Ahithophel guy who was David's kind of right-hand man, a counselor, they're all betraying the king. All of Israel is going astray. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, bring down and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Look how dark this is. When David hears that Absalom trying to usurp him. There's a rebellion. David says we need to run because Absalom will bring ruin on this place. He will kill us with the edge of the sword. That's a father talking about his son. A father saying that if my son comes here, he kills me and all of us. We have to flee for our lives. An incredible pain to fill as a father, to know your child, your children, your people will betray you. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all of his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. There's a number of questions that come to your mind, and probably one of them is like, what in the world is this thing with 10 concubines? First off, why does David have concubines? He's taking multiple wives, and now he's taking additional concubines to those additional women as wives. Now, what's a concubine? It, it's hard to say exactly what it is depending upon the time period and location, but suffice to say, a concubine is like a wife who has less social and cultural rights and privileges. So they would be treated as a wife in some sense, but they wouldn't ha have the rights of a legal wife. So sometimes they would have to be a servant or a slave to the wife of the house. But David has multiple wives and multiple concubines, and he leaves 10 behind. Now who knows the reason exactly why it says to keep the house, but maybe David said, these 10 women, they are not um, my wives, so Absalom won't kill them because they're not a direct threat to his, to his throne. They're, they're just mere sexual partners, so Absalom will at least let the women live. And in that light, you could see David kind of doing the honorable thing because if they go with him and he loses in battle, those women die. Or maybe David just doesn't care. I'm not going to try to save these women's, women's lives. They're just mere concubines. Let Absalom deal with them. We don't know. The text doesn't say. It just says they're left to keep the house. And the king leaves with the rest of the people. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they wept. They went up weeping 
as they went. It's an all-time low for David. David has fled on a personal level from, say, King Saul, but from a military battle, a confrontation, this is the first time in recorded scripture where David flees a fight. And he's weeping because it's his son coming to kill him. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. So you see that language? And all the people. It's obviously not all the people, but the language is like the corruption in Israel is is, is everyone. It's widespread. And then again mentions this, this Ahithophel character. Now Ahithophel functions sort of like as what we'll call an archetypical figure in the story. It's weird. In human stories, there's always this like sleazy, kind of wormy, kind of annoying, evil character that's the right-hand man of the main bad guy. You know what I mean? How many stories and movies do you, can you think of where there's like a worm of a man who functions as the right-hand man to the main bad guy? It's everywhere. That's why we call it like an archetypical, archetypical figure. So in Aladdin, you have Jafar and that dumb bird. You know what I'm talking about? Little Mermaid, Ursula, and the eels. Maleficent, a crow. Lord of the Rings, you have Wormtongue. It's like everywhere, and you can list story after story after story, and this is how the character functions in this story. He's like the Weasley guy whispering into the king's ears, giving him advice that's counter to righteousness and goodness. So you kind of want to hate him. Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel were here that you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all those who are with you will be strengthened. Ahithophel's advice is go and rape the remaining ten concubines in your father's house. Now this is extremely bizarre and weird to modern ears but this is standard practice in the ancient world, not just the ancient Near East where this is taking place in Jerusalem. I'm mean, talking about all across the map, all across the globe, and really up until relatively recent times when you usurped the king, you defeated the king, the new king would take hold of his house. And the way you would take hold of his house is you would take his wives and concubines. Horrific and wrong but in this day, this is what you do to claim your right as the new king. Now, what's different is, is this was not supposed to be taking place in Israel. This should be taking place all around the world because people don't know the Lord, but not in Israel. So Israel is doing things that the, the non-Israelites are, sh- should, are doing. Do you remember last week the story of, of Amnon and Tamar? What does Tamar say to Abnon? Don't do this thing. This is not done in Israel. It's the same type of thing. Now, you want to hate this uh, uh, Hithophel character, and rightfully so, but there's something else to this story that will change your understanding of him. See, Ahithophel is the grandfather of a very important character in our story. Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. Ahithophel saw his granddaughter taken and brought to the king's house. He saw his granddaughter's husband murdered by David. This is what the text records next. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Where did David see Bathsheba? On the roof. You see the sin cycles? The cycles of sin connect the dots. They just continue and continue and spiral out of control. Verse 23, now in those days the council that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and Absalom. In other words, this guy's supposed to like know the Bible and give you good godly wisdom. It's like going to your pastor and saying, I've been, I have this coworker for two years and I feel like I'm, I'm growing attracted to her. And the pastor goes, well, forget your wife, go for the new girl. It's like, are you crazy? Like, this is the last thing the pastor should be saying. The last thing Ahithophel should be saying is, go, go into your father's concubines. But that's what he does. 
And the even more perverse, sick thing about this story is what happens to all of Israel? He does it on the roof in front of, quote, all of Israel. And Israel says, that's our man. There's Absalom. Long live the new king. Get the soldiers ready. Get whatever weapons you have. We're going to go finish the rightful king. That's our guy. Absalom, long live the king. They don't call out the perversion, the wickedness. They go with it. That's our guy. That's Absalom. Long live the new king. Meanwhile, David is running for, for his life. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd. For David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, a bunch of people in exile trying to survive and being hungry in the wilderness, waiting for miraculous provision. Does this sound familiar? Remember, you got five books at this point in the Bible. You have Torah. You got very few stories to go off of. God's people know what it's like to be in the wilderness without provision and on the run. It's sort of a way to say, Maybe God has not forgotten David or his family. In the midst of all of this sin and dysfunction and evil, God's made some promises to Abraham and to David, and he's going to provide in the midst of uncertainty and calamity. Now, after this, there's going to be like a chapter of discussion about how is Absalom going to fight David? Absalom has the advantage. He's probably got, well, not probably, he has at least minimum 20,000 soldiers, probably 20 to 40,000 soldiers. And he wants to wipe out his father, David. And so there's a back and forth, and you can read it on your own time about how Absalom is going to take out David. But as we go forward, David is going to mount some forces and Absalom is going to, but it's completely lopsided. It's like Absalom, 20 to 40,000 men versus David with a couple thousand, a few thousand. So the king stood at the side of the gate while the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Hittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Now this is what's important. David is on the run, hiding. He's got a few thousand to several thousand soldiers. Outnumbered, 20 to 40,000 soldiers on the other side. But David still says, go easy on the young man Absalom for my sake. Why does David think he has a fighting chance? Well, it's because David's men, the men that are loyal to David, are battle-hardened military veterans. Absalom's, he's got some hype and some momentum, but the mighty men of Israel, the warriors, battle-hardened military veterans, they're with David. And this happens all throughout history where the kind of battle-hard vet, the soldiers who have fought together, waged war together, bled together, seen their brothers die together, that those guys can take on way more in number. This happened a lot in the Roman period where like 5,000 Roman just men of war would take on an army of 20 or 30,000 people. There's also going to be something else at play you'll see in a moment, the geography. King David's a military genius. He's a strategist. So he's going to use the geography in his favor. But even though he's outnumbered, he knows there's a good chance he's going to win. So what does he say? Go, go easy on the young man Absalom for my sake. Now let that hit you for a moment. Does the wording stand out to you? Not till gently with my son. Go easy on my baby boy. This is part of, this is my fault. Go, go easy on the young man Absalom. David knows he's sending those soldiers in to kill his son. Or at least he wants them not to, but he knows what war is like. 
So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. You see, outnumbered, but you have the soldiers, and then you have this forest. What goes on? Guerrilla warfare. The other guys don't know how to survive in these situations. So David, the man of war, comes out victorious against his son. And then the tragedy is recorded. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. You see this epic language that's used? It's he's hanging between heaven and earth. And what is he caught by? His head, symbolically representing where the story began, right? Absalom's handsome. He has long, beautiful hair. The symbol of his arrogance, the symbol of his pride is what catches him in the tree branches. And now he's hanging between heaven and earth. There's something else you need to know. Does the Torah have anything to say about men hanging in trees? The answer is yes. If capital punishment is administered and a man is hung as punishment for a crime, you can't leave his body up there for the remainder of the day and the night because that man has died a cursed death. He's died by capital punishment by hanging on a tree, so you can't leave that person there. That person dies the cursed death. So Absalom is hanging between heaven and earth. He's still alive. And in the background, you're wondering, is this the punishment for his crime? Will he die the cursed death? It's as if God is weighing him in the balance between heaven and earth, guilty or innocent. And he, a man by the name Joab, took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. The verdict is, Absalom, who tried to usurp his father, is guilty, and he dies a cursed man's death by hanging in the trees. Now, Joab sends a man who's called a Cushite, that's an ethnicity in, in this time, um, to David, to tell him the news. And when David sees the Cushite approaching, he knows that his people have been victorious. This is, the, this is the herald with the good news, but he doesn't care about who's won the fight. The king says to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord and the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You ask yourself, could it get any darker than this? You get the sense that David sees the culmination of his life, the culmination of his sin the polygamy, the rape, the, the, the incest, the violence, the war, the murder. And it ends with his son dead. And, oh, Absalom, if I could have taken your place, I would have done so. And you ask the question, what's, what's, the, what's the point of all of this? Like, well, what are we to get from this, to glean from this? Last week, if you were here, we talked about how David's sin had direct ramifications and repercussions for his family. David was taking multiple wives. He was an absentee father. He was not managing his house, and his kids paid the price. And so the point of last week was when parents fail, there is a direct connection to their kids, and oftentimes kids will suffer because of mom and dad's mistakes. This week is similar, but it's expanding. 
Last week was about an individual or a family and the repercussions upon that particular family. This week is a look at what happens when it's not just one person or two people or three people, when the whole nation, their whole culture becomes corrupt. Remember, all of Israel looks at Abnon, looks at Absalom with David's concubines, sex on the roof, public display of humiliation, public display of power, and they go, that's our guy. We'll follow him into battle. So what happens when a whole nation becomes corrupt? Evil is everywhere. It's infiltrated every component and facet of, of the nation. Well, this is what happens. Insanity happens. The culture goes nuts. The nation goes nuts. It goes crazy. And if we're honest, you can see a direct kind of paralleling account of what's going on in our culture. It's insane. It's crazy. It's not just a couple families are struggling and their kids will pay the price. Like our culture as a whole is going insane. Pick an institution that you trust. Try and name me an institution you trust. It's like media, no. Hollywood, no. Government, no. There's no trust. Like the institutions that are put in place for good and protection, we don't even trust those. I don't trust, like this is crazy, it's nuts. And then what's even worse is I wish we could just say, yeah, it's all of those stuff. Hollywood, media, government. It's easy to hate on those things, but what about the church? The church is becoming corrupt. I'll give you, I won't give you specific names because some of them are public. They're big names, so it's, it's not like it's secret. And then two of them are people that no one in the room would, would know. They're people that I've, I've known from the past. Spiritual failure by the supposed spiritual leaders in the church. All hu- pastors, some of them huge pastors, some of them gave some of the best godly preaching I've ever heard in my life. One of them, inappropriate relationships with women. Another one was having an affair with women for several years. It turns out that wasn't the first long-term extramarital affair he was having. Another one, someone that I've known personally, married 17, 18 years, four girls, ages like 15, 12, 8, 6. He had been cheating on his wife since year one of their marriage with women in the church and prostitutes. How do those little baby girls begin to trust the heavenly father after father who was a pastor betrayed them like that? How does that woman respond? Adultery is a very painful thing that many of you have experienced, but that woman's last two decades of her life are a lie. Another story of a pastor who was having sex with his son's wife. So it's easy to, oh, government, yeah, I don't like that. Hollywood, media, so, yeah, what? Even the spiritual leaders, the Ahithophels of our culture have betrayed. And so what's the fallout? What's the ramification of that? Is the culture goes insane. And we, like Absalom, say to the rightful king, the king on the throne, we say, we hate you, we defy you, we don't have anything to do with you. We want you gone. We want our guy, Absalom, And so we defy the rightful king. So whatever rule the rightful king has, whatever reign the rightful king, whatever law, order, and structure the rightful king has put in place, we attack it and we hate it. If in the beginning God created male and female in his image, we will despise the differences of masculinity and femininity. We will say there is no such thing as man and woman. Gender is the mere social construct. It is a fabrication of human minds. We obliterate what God establishes. If God in the beginning creates life, we hate life. We hate it as a culture. It used to be like 10 or 15 years ago, if you were pro-choice, the way you would argue it is this way. Abortion is a, is a terrible thing, but it's called for in certain situations. I wouldn't want any woman to experience it. And if you had experienced something like that, you would say, I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through what I do, but I'm pro-choice because I believe there's certain situations that call for it. In our culture now, abortion is celebrated and glorified. If you have it, you can throw a party after. Invite all your friends to your abortion party. A recent comedian did a whole musical display, an ode to abortion, and ended with God bless abortion. 
So it used to be something that you'd want to avoid, but you still believe it should be legal, is now something that's celebrated. What is God's design for his family? His family is that there would be one worldwide, neither male, female, Jew, Gentile, black, or white family. People from all ethnicities coming into the family of God. How are racial tensions at our country right now? Not good. And it's being, the, the fire's being thrown on it. I mean, the sticks to the fire are being thrown on it daily. It's being done by all the major institutions, especially the university systems, where you used to be able to get along with each other. Not used to, but you, you, so some students, I know this, I've seen them, they go into universities and it's like they weren't racist and somehow they come out. And both ends of the spectrum. And it's being propagated by like intellectual poison, like hyper identity pollocks and bogus forms of intersectionality. This is fire, more wood on the fire, more wood on the fire. God wants a worldwide family of all ethnicities. God creates men and women, God creates life, and our culture hates all of those things. What do we tell young kids about sexuality? You tell your 13-year-old, hey, have fun, explore, and follow your heart. What does that mean to a 13-year-old to explore and follow your heart? It's insane. Our culture is growing insane, and it's worse by the day. So what do you do? It's like, what do you do in the midst of that, man? And the temptation is when you see the, the downward spiral of sin is like you start inventing some heroic version of what you could do, some romanticized version of like how you're going to change the world, how you're going to fight all the evil that's in there. Here's my advice for Christians in our culture. Before you think you're some superhero that's going to go fight evil and win back the culture and all this stuff, how about you start with reading your Bible, praying, spending more time with your kids, being a better spouse? How about you start with the little things before you go try to save the world? And this is especially true for the young people because young people, you've been given a spirit that says, um, you're so awesome, you will save the world. Start a nonprofit, you're so special. There's a psychologist who, I, who has a popular book in the country. And normally if a psychologist has like a number one book in the country, it's like self-help and I hate it. But this guy I really like. His advice for young people is, before you go change the world, how about you learn how to clean your room? Why? Because when you're proven faithful in small things, God will give you responsibility over the big things. We think we're going to go change the world and storm the gates of hell, and it's like, we're not even good parents yet. And here's the other thing, and this is why this is so important, is David didn't wake up one day and take Bathsheba from the roof. He started off as a godly person, but it was the slow, steady kind of downfall, the small decisions the little things that you don't do right. You don't wake up and say, I am going to cheat on my wife. You start off by two years of what you call innocent flirting with a coworker. It's not innocent. It's evil. And you want to think it's a small thing, but lots of small things add up to big things. They add up to big things for individuals, and it adds up to big things for the entire culture. So what's the remedy? Say, God, what are the little things I could do right now? Can I spend more time with my kids? Can I be a better spouse? Can I work harder? Could I watch less TV? What are the small things I could do right now and be faithful? And then if I'm found faithful, God, give me greater responsibility. See, we're all like Absalom. God gave us a plan, a rule, and we defied. Absalom wanted to usurp the rightful rule of the true king. And where does he end up? He ends up dying, the cursed death, hanging from a tree. Now here's the good news. And the ushers can pass forward communion and the worship team come up as we close. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ. Is yes, you were like Absalom, and David said, what for Absalom? Oh, could I have taken my son's place? 
You were like Absalom, I was like Absalom. We deserve to die the cursed death on the tree. But the rightful king of heaven and earth was not like David. The rightful king of heaven and earth said, I will trade places with you. And so Jesus comes and dies the cursed death on the cursed tree. Paul points this out in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In other words, we are Absalom. We deserve the cursed death. Christ says, my son, my daughter, I will take your place. And he dies on a Roman cross, the cursed death. And he does this because he loves you and forgives you. He is not like David. He is not the absentee father who doesn't care. He loves you. He knows the hair on your head. He knows your problems, your biggest concerns, your biggest worries. He knows your faults, your failures. And he says, you're my son and I don't send you into exile for five years. I want to walk with you daily. I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And so as we close this service and take communion, what I'd like us to do is confess to God the little things we know that we're not doing right right now. What are the things in your life that are out of place right now? Name them in your head. Give them to God. And as you do this, remember his death and his sacrifice at the cross. He takes your place on your behalf. And then as we enter into song, repledge your allegiance to the king and say, even if the whole nation turn against you, you are my king and I will follow you. Let's stand as we take the elements. The body representing, the bread representing the body of Jesus broken on our behalf. He goes to the tree, he goes to the cross, his body broken instead of ours. The cup represents Jesus' blood. Instead of our blood being spilt, it's the Son of God's, the rightful King. We drink this in remembrance, and we drink it until you return again. As we close with the song about the Father's love, May you exalt the rightful king of heaven and earth. Give him your problems. Give him your worries. Receive his grace and forgiveness.